enough, we remember what took place on that day, where we were at, and it was a, a very trying, difficult time for our nation. And um, my thoughts go back every year uh, of being down at Ground Zero when uh, I was called out. Mike McIntosh, Calvary Chapel pastor, he's uh, like the head chaplain for Red Cross and um, law enforcement chaplain that trained a lot of chaplains throughout the country. And uh, so he had some of us come out down there to Ground Zero. And um, it just reminds me a couple things. Number one, how things have changed so much in 21 years. I mean, that was a very trying time. But I also think about where we've gone uh, since then as a nation. For a short time, churches were full after, you know, the, uh, that Tuesday. And, um, and, and, you know, we were united as a nation. But I think about what has happened and how we're so divided. And um, just the attitude towards first responders have changed. Um, being down there uh, at ground zero during the day, you know, at the end of the day, you're full of dust. And just talking with, you know, New York City police officers, Port Authority, you know, even state troopers, they didn't want to go home. Um, and then we take an hour off, you know, kind of clean up, and then we go into a restaurant. Uh, so, you know, Manhattan, that area of Manhattan was closed down. It was just shut down. It's like a military zone. And there was a restaurant. All the restaurants were closed down, and there was an Italian restaurant where the owner opened it up to um, just feed law enforcement. So we go in and peel potatoes and make food, and they come in by the hundreds at night, so we'd work all night, just talking with them, the stories, and how they, you know, rushed towards that danger and lost the friends, and I remember being down there, and, you know, world leaders were coming by, and met Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and it, it was such an overwhelming time, and as I've said, but just um, even respect of life, uh, when the dogs were there, you know, trying to find remains and during the recovery, and um, they would be real frustrated. So they, you know, have people we hide under the rubble, and they find us, and the dogs would be real happy. And but once in a while, they would find, you know, parts when I was there, and and uh, whistle would blow, and you know, we'd all line up and. They back up an ambulance, and it was so respectful. And then we'd be lined up with, at attention, and then they would leave and go to the mortuary. And it breaks my heart what we see in our culture of attitude towards law enforcement, first responders. I know they're not perfect, but I'm very grateful that we can call them. And they're there to help. And so many of them ran towards danger on that day and lost so many friends and brothers and dads and moms, over 300 firefighters, 60-some peace officers. So I just want to take time to pray for them. This is a church we support them. And like I said, I, they... 
the vast majority, as I've been a chaplain for the sheriff's office for 20 years now, they want to serve their community. And I want us to remember this again, because this isn't heaven. I mean, the church isn't perfect. Um, but a vast majority want to serve their community. And God's word says that their work is ordained for a good work and an honorable work before him. And we need to pray for them. And I got a heart for them, and I'll just let you know that. And I will always support them in this church. And we will always be praying for them. For those of you who have been in the military, those of you who firefighters, paramedics, peace officers, thank you for your service. And we're very grateful. And it's been an honor just to be a friend of the agency. And it's a part of ministry that I don't talk a whole lot about to you guys. But, you know, Sue can tell you the nights that I have been gone. Or being with a family of a peace officer that committed suicide. Because the suicide rate is about seven times higher than the normal population. Or even if they've fallen in the line of duty. To be with them, they're just human beings like us that go through difficulties and trials. And please pray for them. Even if you don't like them, you are called to pray for them and to pray for our country because it's sad to see what has happened in the direction that we're going. And I know this, that the answer is the gospel. That is the answer for our nation and it turning back to him. We're more divided than ever before. People are losing hope and we have hope. We have hope. And wherever God has placed you to minister to whoever, that you have that message to be able to give to others. So I want to encourage you in that. And very heavy days. We are seeing the birth pangs that are becoming more intense and more frequent. Lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. That in the last days there will be perilous times, as we know that Paul borrows that word from Matthew chapter 8, speaking of the demoniacs who are fierce and violent. We're seeing it. And we're going to see that it's going to get worse. I pray for a revival. I really do. I believe God wants to save. He wants to save this nation. If I be lifted up, Jesus said, I will save all men. You know, I will draw all men to myself. It is for whoever you are, whatever background, whatever you've gone through, there is forgiveness. And there is God's love that is for you. But may we be praying in the days in which we are in. So I know I'm kind of going a little long here. So why don't you stand and let's pray. Father, as I, I ponder these things, my heart breaks. As I see what has happened in our nation to families, uh, my heart breaks. We do get concerned. 
I'm so grateful that there's forgiveness and hope through the cross of Jesus. We pray for our nation that there is a turning back to you. I pray for our nation that, that there be a spiritual awakening. And Lord, as we remembered what happened 21 years ago, Lord, I just pray for those families that experienced loss, those in the Twin Towers, those at the Pentagon, those in Pennsylvania, mothers and fathers and daughters and brothers and sisters, children that lost their lives very tragically. And Lord, you have blessed this nation, but we've gotten away from you. Lord, I pray for first responders. I thank you for their service. Veterans, the military, peace officers, firefighters, paramedics. They're there for our good, for the safety of our community. I pray, Lord, for the church. As I read the statistics that nearly 40% of senior pastors don't even believe that the Bible is the absolute truth, word of God. That as we see even in our text today that there's a flattery, a, a trickery that's happening to people, taking them away from what you declare in your word, that we would be strong and have great exploits that you have for us in these days. Lord, we're not interested in playing church. We want to be encouraged and uplifted in the word of God today. So may we be attentive. Lord, may we know that all this is culminating to a time that we look forward to when you will establish your kingdom. But in the meantime, we be watching and sober and vigilant. And Lord, that we be about the king's business, even as Daniel was when he was overwhelmed. We give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for allowing me to do that. <laughs> Daniel chapter 11, if you'll turn there. Daniel chapter 11. This vision of Daniel 11, this is, of course, the fourth and final vision given to Daniel the prophet. And this vision would give some insights to the leaders and the kings, beginning with Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C., all the way to the end of the age as we know it. Talking about the one that is yet future that will come on the scene, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now chapter 11 is divided up into two sections. The first 35 verses, Daniel describes the major rulers of the Persian Empire. And also, a lot of details given to the third empire that would come on a scene that Daniel would prophesy about in chapter 2. And that vision, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel said, here's the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the interpretation of the dream. And it's going to be Greece that will come on the scene as they will replace the Medo-Persian empire. 
and we know that to be Alexander the Great. He came, he conquered the known world. He began his military excursions at the age of 18. At the age of 20, he was the king of Greece, and he conquered the known world from Greece to India at the age of 33, about 15 years. It would be shortly after that that he would die at a young age, and the empire would be passed on to four of his generals. And if you were with us last week in our study, we were reading all these prophecies that were taking place in that time frame of, of Alexander the Great until this last Syrian king that we're going to talk about. It's a time frame of just over 200 years. And in chapters uh, 11 here, in verses 5 through 20 of the chapter, we see that there's a focus on two of those kings, their dynasty, their families. There was the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucid family in, in Syria. And how over time these two dynasties would be involved in wars and be involved in conflict. It would read like a soap opera as we went through that. And Israel is caught right in the middle of this conflict. And we ended at verse 21 and 20, uh, 20 and 21 beginning to talk about this last king of, of, of Syria, the Seleucid family. His name was called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he would reign in Syria from 175 to 164 BC. Now, he is not an important person, per se, in secular history, but he is an important person prophetically because he's a picture of the one that is yet to come. And of course, that is the one that John in the New Testament uniquely calls him the Antichrist. We will read about how Antiochus Epiphanes is a shadow of, is a picture of, points to the Antichrist as he will be described to us in verses 36 through 45. So let's begin to look at Daniel in chapter 11. Let's pick it up at verse 21 where we left off last week. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and siege the kingdom by intrigue. And with the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. So this Antiochus Epiphanes, the, he's the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. If you were with us as we went through that chapter, the scripture says he was very vile. He would take the rule of Syria by flattery, by trickery. In other words, he was a smooth talker. He was a great orator, uh, had great oratory skills. He convinced the people that he should be the rightful king. And he would take on the name Epiphanes, which means glorious. He wanted the people to see him as someone to be honored, um, someone to be regarded as a god. And it was a title that he gave himself. Now, the Jews had a play of words. They called him Antiochus Epinani. And, and that means he's Antiochus the madman. And he was a madman. Uh, he led an immoral life. He would persecute and hate the Jews, as we're going to read about here, continuing through our, our study this morning. He was one that would manipulate others. Again, that's how he attained the throne. He did not attain it through honorable means, but by manipulating the situation. The kingdom should have, in Syria, at that time in history, gone to uh, the son of Seleucus IV, a guy by the name of uh, Demetrius Sater. Now, that's not an important name to remember, but he, Antiochus, was accepted as a leader because he turned away Egypt and uh, that was attempting to invade. 
And in verse 22, as we read here, as he comes against Israel, first of all, the first thing he did was he killed the Jewish high priest. And we continue reading in verse 23. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what is right uh, to do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So he would sign peace treaties with other nations. And his power and his prestige would uh, rise with the help of a small number of people. He would begin to redistribute wealth taken from the rich, and he would give it to his followers, the ones that would help him. We read in verse 25 of this Antiochus, this vile one, that he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. So Antiochus, he goes to war against Egypt. He renews this, this old rivalry that we talked about last week. And he says, as is about 170 B.C. now, about 170 years before the birth of Christ, he says, I'm going to go after those Egyptians. And in verse 26, as he does that, yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So there's this rapid fire of prophecy that is being fulfilled here. In verse 26, as Daniel's writing this, it would be fulfilled in that Antiochus, he tricks some of the servants of Ptolemy, of Egypt, the leaders there, to turn against their king. And the king of the south, he's done in by his own people. He is killed. They betrayed him. So Antiochus sweeps away the Egyptian army. And then in verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So what happens here is that Syria and Egypt, they sit down at the peace table. And they're both very deceptive. They both lie through their teeth. And Antiochus professed friendship with Egypt. And so it ended up that peace never came. And as we read in verse 28 now, continuing, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So what we're told here at this time, Antiochus, what he does, because he's disappointed, uh, he tried to take all of Egypt's territory, but he failed. And he would begin to take great wealth from Egypt back to his home up north. And again, in between Egypt and Syria is Egypt. And he passes through Israel this first time here, and he takes out his frustration on them. Uh, he persecutes them very heavily. He begins to come against, as we read in verse 28, the Mosaic system, the Holy Covenant. And then he would return to his homeland. He would be there in his homeland for uh, a short period, a couple years. And then in verse 29, at the appointed time, he shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So a couple years later, he decides, I'm going to move against Egypt again. I'm going to get those guys down there. But then he ran into a problem. 
Now, if you were with us last week in our study going through this, you might remember that we talked about that at this time in history, the Romans would begin to come to power. They would begin to flex their muscles. And just as it's fulfilled, just as Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of, of silver, is going to be replaced by the belly and, brass of, uh, belly and thighs of brass, that then the Grecian Empire is going to be replaced by the Roman Empire that would be in power, come into power at this time, would be in power at the time of Jesus' birth and death and burial and resurrection and pass that in the, in the early church. In Rome is the, the, the legs of iron. And here they come to power. They had come to Egypt on ships from Cyprus, Roman gallows. And what happened is that the Romans met Antiochus in the desert. And the Roman commander drew a line right in front of Antiochus in the sand, on the ground. And he said, you cross this line, Antiochus, you're a dead man. We're going to do you in and, and kill you. So Antiochus is forced to back down, to submit to, to Rome's power. He wanted to wipe out the Egyptians, and now he stopped. He's, he's full of rage. And here in verse 30, as we read here, that it says that, that he will return in, in, in rage. And that's what he did. He's ticked off. He's frustrated. And in his frustration and anger, he takes it out on Israel as he's heading back. He goes into Jerusalem. He goes into Israel for this second time. And let's read in verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. He's mad, Antiochus. He's angered. He's full of rage. And what does he do? Well, he finds some renegade Jews that would help him. And he says, you go to Jerusalem. You tell them that I'm sending my general with thousands of troops, over 20,000 troops, but it's going to be on a peace mission. And, of course, he was lying. And as I said, this Antiochus, the reason that it's written to us about him, he's foreshadows, he points to, he is a picture of the one that is yet future, the Antichrist. We know that the Antichrist, that when he comes on the scene, he's going to come and he's going to be a great orator. Daniel has emphasized that. He's going to speak flattery. He's going to do it by trickery. He's going to convince people of the things that he is saying. And the things that he says comes against the Most High God. We also know that he's going to come on the scene, that initially he's going to be a peacemaker. He's going to be the writer. Revelation chapter 6 begins the tribulation period in detail through chapter 19. The first seal that's opened up, the rider on the white horse, he has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. So he comes by peaceful means, and he's conquering on the conquer. And so this is what Antiochus, he says, hey, I'm going to come in, peace mission, and he's lying just as the Antichrist is lying, and Antiochus shows his true colors, just as the Antichrist will show his true colors as well, particularly in the middle of the tribulation period. And Antiochus, at this time in history, comes into Jerusalem, and he kills many Jews. I've read estimates as many as 80 to 100,000 Jews that he killed. He took 40 to 50,000 off as, as prisoners as, and made them slaves. He then went into the second temp, temple. He plundered the temple. He burned some of the city. 
he moved to abolish all of the Mosaic system and he desecrated the temple by taking a pig into the Holy of Holies and he, he killed the pig and he smeared the blood all over. Of course, pigs were considered unclean in the Jewish culture. He ends up setting up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He commanded that the copies of the law be burnt and he tried to get them to adopt the Greek culture and to prevent circumcision. And he promised any Jew who forsook the worship of their God and practices and would end up worshiping Zeus and to sacrifice a pig on the 25th day of each month to celebrate his birthday, Antiochus' birthday, they're going to be rewarded. Listen, we're seeing a shadow of what's going to take place when the Antichrist does that. We know that there are those that are coming along trying to take us away from the truth of God's word. I was reading an article that was really quite sad to read and look at that some researchers, as they researched and they surveyed, you know, senior pastors um, across America, that 30 to 40 percent of, of pastors, executive pastors, senior pastors, don't even believe that this is the absolute truth of God's word. They compromise the Bible. And, and as I was reading the statistics going on and on, that it was, it was hard to read and to realize, is it really that bad? Those who won't stand on the gospel, those who won't stand on the truth of God's word, but yet we're seeing it in the church today. You know that to be true. There are those who have forsaken the word of God. They'll talk about God. They'll talk about Jesus. They'll talk about all kinds of terms that we read about, but they'll say you can live any way that you want. You know, adopt what culture is saying. You need to embrace culture, and we know that to be true. Rather than the church is the influence culture, culture is influencing the church, it seems like, in the day in which we are in. And Antiochus, he was so smooth and trickery that, that there were those that were turning to him, being rewarded. And, and we know that today, that when there is the message that the world gives to you know, our culture, to our young people, it can seem so appealing. It pleases the flesh. This is so good. I don't want to believe what the Bible has to say. That's my parents' religion. And, and we see that taking place more and more. It will be even to a greater degree when the tribulation period happens. So he persuaded many to forsake their faith, their beliefs, and, and to turn to that which was false. Let's continue to read in verse 33. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet... For many days they shall fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity and plundering. But now they fall, and they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join in with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So as we look at this, we, we know that many who refuse Antiochus' false religious system would fall. And what happened is that there was a priest in Israel at that time, Matthias Maccabee. He had five sons, and he refused to submit to that false religious system. And he and his sons fled to the mountains and began a revolt against the Syrians and against Antiochus. And one of the brothers was by a name of a brother, Judas Maccabee. And Judas Maccabee, that he would begin this revolt against the Syrian army. It started out small, but then he would begin to 
to come against the Syrian army. They would eventually drive the Syrian army out after about eight, nine years. And they would then at that time, as the Syrian forces were driven out of Jerusalem, Antiochus, he was away. But what happened was, is that they cleaned up the temple. They, they rededicated the temple. Uh, they, they cleansed it. They lit the menorah in the holy place in that rededication. And when they did that, the menorah, which is that seven-branch candlestick, there was bowls on top of, of each of those branches, and it would be full of oil and then wicks floating around. And one of the responsibilities of the priests was to, to you know, fill up those bowls full of oil every day. Well, when they re- relit the, the menorah, they realized we don't have any more holy oil. And it takes eight days to make a new batch of holy oil, and they thought the light's going to go out, the menorah's going to go out, this is a bad sign, and they began to pray. Well, a miracle happened. What happened was is that it lasted for eight days. The lights didn't go out in the holy place. The, the flames kept burning in the menorah until they were able to make that new batch. So they commemorated today uh, that miracle that happened in what was called the Feast of Lights. It was called the Feast of Lights even in Jesus' day. In John's Gospel, you read how Jesus came up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Lights. That's what they commemorated. Today, the Jews remember it as Hanukkah. So that's what Hanukkah means. It means dedication. So when you talk to your Jewish friends or as you're talking to others about, you know, they say, what is Hanukkah all about? You know the background because most Christians don't know the background. It was also a time that they cut down the palm branches uh, of palm, the branches of palm trees, excuse me, and they began to wave them. And it was a sign of political freedom. And, uh, you know, no longer is Antiochus Epiphany and his Syrian soldiers oppressing us. It was a sign of freedom. And that also reminds you of something, doesn't it? It reminds you of when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The people, what, cut down the branches of palm trees and they're waving them and they're yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, ascribing to him the title of Messiah. And you see, they were looking for Jesus to come and the sky to open up and angels descend and to do away with the Romans who were oppressing them. They thought, this is it. Messiah's coming. The kingdom's coming. The Romans are going to get theirs. And when they realized that Jesus was not going to deliver them from Rome, that a few days later, they're crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And they did not understand at that time that Jesus came to free them from a greater bondage than the Romans could put on them than Rome can put on us and that is the bondage of sin and I hope you and I keep that eternal perspective because you know we can look at the things going on around us and those things that concern us that upset us I know that they are important issues but the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be freed from sin and the bondage of sin And that's why Jesus came, and that's why he would take that cross and go to that place of execution. He would go and hang on that cross because of his love for you, to give us hope, to free us from the bondage of sin. 
And they didn't understand that, that he came the first time to free us from sin. He's going to come again in the true triumphal entry of Jesus in the second coming of Jesus Christ where he will come and rule and reign. So here is Antiochus being driven out. And, and when he hears about what had happened, he was going to come into Israel. He was off into Elam, into that area where Iran is today. He's going to come back. He was determined he was going to kill all the Jews, but he ended up dying. So, but I want us to, to think about something here as we see here that in verse 32, I want to go back, that those who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. No matter, listen, no matter how difficult it is and how discouraged we can get in seeing what's taking place in our nation, in our culture, in the church even, I want you to know this, that those who know their God shall be strong. You want to be strong in a day in which we're living in? Because we can find ourselves being weak and discouraged and upset and anxious and all of this. I've experienced it myself. But know this, you know the true and the living God. And he desires to strengthen you, even as Daniel was told in his vision, Daniel, you be strong. It overwhelmed him. And the Lord is saying to you, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. And you will do great exploits because the Lord wants to work through you. He wants to use you in the day in which we are in to give a message of hope, to be a light to others. Wherever the Lord has placed you, in your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, to your family, to friends, he desires to use you to give a message that the world desperately needs to hear in a world that's getting darker and more deceptive and more weird than ever before. He wants to do great exploits as you know your God and trust in him and as you continue to, to just look to him and grow in his word. And in verse 35, what it does is it, it, it ends this section talking about Antiochus, the Syrian kings and the Ptolemies, and all of that has been fulfilled. Notice in verse 35 that until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Now we turn the page in the prophetic timeline. And verses 36 to the end of the chapter is now, there's a 2,000 year gap, just like in chapter 9, 69 weeks, remember? Until Messiah the Prince comes, 69 periods of seven years. And that has been fulfilled, but 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, your holy city. So there's still a one-week period, seven-year period that is yet future. The church is hidden in the book of Daniel. Here we see that gap. That it ends here with Antiochus Epiphanes pointing to a shadow of, a picture of the one that is now going to be spoken of, and that is the Antichrist. And as we read in verse 36, then the king shall do... According to his own will, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall he, uh, he has done. So the Antichrist, we know that according to Daniel chapter 9 that we read in verse 27, that Daniel speaks about the abomination of desolation. And just as it was Antiochus Epiphanes that desecrated the temple, set up an image there of Zeus, that we know that the scripture tells us that the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. We know that the temple will be standing at that time. There's no temple in Jerusalem right now. 
but they are preparing for it. And they got all the furnishings ready to go. They got plans. I believe that they're waiting for that time when the Antichrist comes and makes a covenant with them for a week that's going to allow them to build that temple. He will go into the temple in the middle of the tribulation period, and he, as Paul says, will exalt himself as God to be worshipped as, as God in the temple of God. In other words, that he's going to proclaim himself as God, even as it says here, that he will speak blasphemies against the God of God and shall prosper to the wrath that's been accomplished. He will magnify himself, uh, himself, magnify himself above every God. He's going to say, I alone am going to be worshipped. And he's going to be empowered by Satan directly. And we know that Satan has always wanted to be worshipped, right? He, he, Isaiah 14, going to sit on the throne to, to be exalted. We know that he said to Jesus, bow down and worship me. And all the kingdoms are yours. So it's something that he's always wanted. And the Antichrist is going to say, listen, you bow down and you worship me. You take my mark. You make your allegiance to me. And that takes place. And when that happens, that's where Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet, then it will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And that ushers in the last three and a half years of what is called the great tribulation period. We know that as he comes on the scene, that he's going to come out of that revived Roman Empire. Uh, he's going to come and the, the ten kings that are spoken of that revived Roman Empire are going to give their authority to the beast, that is him. He's going to also support initially, at the beginning of the tribulation period, a false worldwide church. The, the woman riding the beast of Revelation chapter 17. And then in the middle of the tribulation period, after he uses that false church that is going to be supported by the leaders of the world, that he's going to turn against the woman and then he will proclaim himself as God. I wonder, what is that false church? Now, what exactly is it going to be? And there's all kinds of speculations, but I don't know. But we do know that Paul speaks about there's going to be a falling away. And that's why it concerns me. I think one of the signs that we see that we are approaching the end times and that we are in the end times is that we see that the church, again, more and more is getting away from the truth of God's word, accepting anything. So here, the Antichrist, all these things are, are spoken of. Um, he will come, and he will speak against the God of Israel, the true and living God. He's a political leader. He is a religious leader. And he is one that is going to persecute the tribulation saints, as even as Antiochus killed many Jews, that we know that the Antichrist, that he will kill many Jews as well. Matter of fact, Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of that. There will be a remnant of the Jews that will flee to the rock city of Petra at that time. He will also persecute very heavily anyone who does not take his mark. And he will persecute the tribulation saints. And he will put them to death as well, as many as he can. So he will show his true colors in the middle of the tribulation period. He will stop the sacrifices, set up an image of himself. His reign will come to an end. Let's continue reading in verse 37. He shall regard, regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. And there's a lot that's in here, but... Some suggest that this terminology here in verse 37, that he shall regard neither the God of his fathers 
that that's a Jewish term. So there are those who say that the Antichrist perhaps is Jewish. I don't know. Um, Daniel goes through a lot of, um, you know, emphasis that he comes out of the Gentile nations, right? But some say this is a term. And then also in verse 37 it says that nor the desire of women. Some say that he's going to be homosexual. It's not what it's saying here. It's not saying that he doesn't have a desire for women. It's desire of women. And some scholars look at that and say that that very much could be a, a Jewish term as well. Um, the God of his fathers, um, a Jewish term. Um, the desire of women. Every woman, you know, in the Old Testament, of course, they wanted to carry the Christ child, the Messiah, even today. Uh, they're still waiting for the Messiah. So in the book of, I believe, is Haggai, in chapter 2, verse 7, it speaks about how the title Messiah is the desire of all the nations. So is this saying that he is of Jewish descent? That he doesn't regard the God of his fathers, a Jewish term, or the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Keep in mind this, that the Antichrist, that title means against Christ. It's not only against Christ, but it also takes on the meaning of a counterfeit instead of Christ. There are those who insist that the Antichrist is going to be Muslim. I don't take that view at all. He's not against Muhammad, all right? He is against Christ, and he will come on as a counterfeit to do that. So you can look at this, and you guys can have coffee together. You can debate it. You can, you know, talk about it, think about it when you go to bed at night and all that stuff. But we do know that he's going to exalt himself above every other God. He's going to demand the world to worship him. And as we read in verse 38, that but in their place you shall honor a God of fortress and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. He's going to be extremely wealthy, and, and just like Antiochus tried to amass wealth, we also know that he is not only a political leader, a religious leader, he's a military leader. He's going to begin to make his move um, militarily against the world. Verse 39, he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. That's an interesting um, term that is there, a foreign god. Um, what does it mean? It could be... Some suggest that somehow he uses that false church in the beginning of the tribulation period for his purposes. And he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So it could be that that false worldwide church supported by the, the kings of the world is going to be used, obviously, that we see for the advantage of the Antichrist. But let's finish this morning. At the time, at the end, the king of the south shall attack him, verse 40 tells us. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. And he shall enter the, the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That's the modern-day country of Jordan. And what's going to happen is when he commands to be worshipped, that many of the Jews are going to say, nope, we're going to not worship your image. We are not going to accept you as our Messiah. And they're going to flee to the rock city of Petra. The book of Isaiah speaks of that. I believe Isaiah chapter 16, that they will flee to Sela, to, to Petra. 
and there that they're going to be protected, a remnant of the Jews, for three and a half years in the rock city of Petra. I've been there before. Amazing place. It was a city cut, cut out of the rocks. Um, the third Indiana Jones movie, you know, um, as they went into the canyon there, and there's the rock city. That's Petra. So that's where they're going to flee to, and God's going to sustain them for that time. And also, as we read in verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall give power over the treasures of gold and silver, over all precious things of Egypt, also the Libyans. Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So that's Mediterranean, the Dead Sea. The holy mountain is probably Mount Moriah, uh, where the temples has been built on, um, and the rebuilt temple will be. Some believe that he will set up his palace there on the Temple Mount somehow. It is interesting, you can study this, that Revelation chapter 11 speaks about, John, you measure the temple, but don't measure the outer court because it's been given to the Gentiles. Is that speaking of a reference to Antichrist setting up his palace there on the Temple Mount? Again, we don't know for sure. But he's going to set up his headquarters in Jerusalem. There's going to be, it's going to lead in the great tribulation period, God pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world, but also the, the armies of the south, the kings of the south, with his Africa, um, maybe Egypt is a part of that. The kings of the north, is that Europe? Is it Russia? How does Russia play into it? Because you've got Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, which may be the next major war in the Middle East, that Russia and, and Persia and uh, Turkey, that they're already entrenched in Syria, will come into Israel and God will destroy those armies. So where does Russia play into it? But the kings of the north at that time will come, and then the kings of the east. And we know the book of Revelation speaks of the kings of the east. As the Euphrates River is dried up, they will come over and they will all meet into this valley called the Valley of Megiddo. In the last battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And there the last world war will take place and then Christ will come back. And the good news is we're going to come back with him. And he will establish his kingdom. So I gave you a very broad overview of what we could spend a lot of time going over. But to know this, that the Lord is going to come back. And that there is going to be this future leader that will come on the scene. People ask, who is the Antichrist? And are we going to see him? Because the Bible talks a lot about him. I don't know who the Antichrist is. And there's always these guesses, you know. The latest president is the Antichrist, you know. You know, this person is the Antichrist. He who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will come. And I believe that's speaking of the church. That when we're taken away, when we are raptured, then lawlessness will fill this earth and then the Antichrist will come on a scene. So we're a restraining factor. I believe that that's what Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is speaking of. And I want you to remember this. He doesn't tell us to be looking for Antichrist. We're always told to be looking for Jesus Christ. And that's why we're told to be watching, to be waiting, to be looking. Don't go to sleep spiritually, folks. 
because we're rushing towards this time. And I believe that the next thing on a prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Because Jesus said, I come at a time where you're least expected, at a time that you do not know. Be sober, be vigilant, be waiting. And know this, that those who believe in their God shall be strong and have great exploits. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much. There's so much to talk about. And, and we will over the next couple of weeks as we finish this incredible book. But, Lord, we know that these things will come to pass just as the first 35 verses came to pass. That we know that the next portion will come to pass. And, and Lord, I pray that as we see the signs and the birth pangs and the storm clouds gathering, that it wouldn't trouble us because Paul says, don't be troubled. Jesus said, don't be troubled. We know that Paul would write concerning the rapture. and When he talked about the day of the Lord, that we're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation, comfort one another with these words. We can be comforted today that we have the blessed hope that is before us, a promise given to us that you're going to come for us and be part of a kingdom that will be established forever. So we want to be watching. We want to do great exploits for you, Lord, not lose hope. So I thank you. I thank you that all of us, that we've experienced your forgiveness and mercy and grace. I want to pray for anyone who's here or listening right now or perhaps on the radio later that you have not given your life to Jesus. He loves you. He is your salvation. There is none other. He died for your sin, and salvation is in Christ alone and in faith alone, in Him. And what He did on the cross in dying for your sins and He rose from the grave is not based on our performance. It's on faith in Him, trusting in Him, of the finished work of the cross. And if you're here, you have not called out on the name of the Lord. The Bible says repent and turn to Jesus and be forgiven. Do that right now. Because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And you can do that sincerely in your heart. And you pray that Jesus, I come to you a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again and you're alive. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for saving me and dying for me, for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. And I want to know you and be strong. I believe your word and that you're coming back. And I thank you I belong to the family of God and the kingdom that will be established forever. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And for all of us, as we go out of this place, that we would just keep our eyes on you and be used to be a blessing to the people that are linked to us in our lives, Lord. Help us through the struggles and through the difficulties when we're anxious, when we're angry, that we keep giving it all to you, Lord, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father. almighty God who loves us so much and has provided for us. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. In Jesus' name.